If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed into their own country by another way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day. Lord, once again, we thank you for this new year, a new chance to serve you, a new chance to be an example for you. Father, I pray that as we uh, listen and as we hear the word spoke about this morning, that it would be the Holy Spirit that speaks and not me. I pray, Lord, that you would move me and my weakness out of the way and that you, God, would speak. Be with us now, and I pray that you would be with us this whole year. We say these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, reactions can tell you a lot about a person. They tell you uh, whether they're I'm sorry, reacting to a Christmas present or something on the news or maybe just something that someone is saying or a story that's being told. You can tell by the way they talk, by the way they look, by the way they act, what they're kind of thinking about what's going on. So if you have someone, when you say something or they see something on the news, they just kind of look away and they don't really seem attentive. They might just disapprove of what they're seeing or what they're hearing. Or if you're talking to someone and you, they just give you a, uh-huh, yep, or they're looking at their phone the whole time, you might get the idea that they're disinterested in what you're saying, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but what we're going to see in our passage today is that uh, the whole world has a reaction to the greatest event in human history, the coming of Christ. We're going to see that there are usually... There are more, but usually there are three ways that people react, either with fear or with indifference or uh, with worship. So first, we see that they react with fear. Look at this in verses 1 through 3. Matthew begins the chapter 2 by describing what happens after Christ has been born. He tells us that it was during the time of Herod the Great, and that suddenly these wise men turn up and they make a shocking statement. They say, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, before we look at their statement, let's kind of focus in on who these mysterious men from the east are. 
because there's not very much we know about him. Only in around two lines in this whole passage are we told everything we know about the wise men. First thing we know is that they are from the east. Uh, they're uh, called magi, and we know that they aren't really kings, but instead they're closer to uh, priests or like court advisors. So our song, you know, We Three Kings of Orient are maybe a little off. Um, and we know that from the book of Daniel, whenever King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, he called all of his wise men to come in and to interpret his dream. But they couldn't do it, so he was going to kill them. And Daniel and his three friends are in this group. We also know in that group, there were these astrologers, people who just studied the stars. We know that these wise men, they care about the stars because what was it that brought them to Jerusalem? The star when it rose. So we know that they have been aware of Christ's birth because of this star, but we also have no idea where the Magi are from. The Bible just doesn't tell us. Now, our best guess is from Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, or maybe Persia, which is modern-day Iran. That's where Magi were really big, and, and that's where a lot of the ancient documents about them are. But uh, we also know that they're heavily influenced by Judaism because they know what the Messiah is. They know what the Christ is, and they've traveled all the way to Jerusalem to find out about him and to worship him. So they seem to know some things about Jesus. Now, if they're from Babylon, they probably have read the book of Daniel, or they know about Jesus from some Jews that stayed in Babylon after the exile. So there are some options, there are some possibilities that they're that, but we just we don't know. We also don't know how many there were, because the Bible just says that there were more than one. So there could have been, there could have been three, we think that because of the three presents, but which that might have been the case. Or there could have been two all the way to like 200 or more. We don't really know. But since they were probably political figures, they probably had a guard that was with them, so they were probably traveling with soldiers. So they show up to Jerusalem, and they're asking everyone where the Christ is because they figure, well, if the Messiah is born, everybody's talking about it. Everybody knows about it. But what they're met with is blank stares and blank faces. And then eventually they get to Herod the king, and they say, where is this king, this newborn king? And so um, they ask Herod of where he is and where they can worship him. So the wise men, they at least understand two things about Jesus. That one, he is the rightful king, and two, he is divine and worthy of worship. They don't give that honor to Herod. They don't ever try to worship him. Immediately we see what Herod's reaction is whenever he hears that a new king has been born. You see, Herod, he's not the rightful king. He wasn't David's descendant. He was just a puppet king that was put on the throne by Caesar. He's not even a Jew. He's an Edomite. He marries a Jewish woman so that the Jews will accept him. But thats he's not Jewish at all. He doesn't deserve to be the king. He was also a very cruel man. and He was a merciless man. He was very suspicious of people, and he always thought they were trying to take his throne away from him. In fact, his suspicion caused him to kill his wife, her mother, her brother, and his three sons. He always thought people were trying to take away his throne. Imagine what he was thinking when this group of foreign advisors to kings show up 
with a guard, and they start, they start asking, where's the newborn king of Israel? He might have been a little scared. It says in verse 3 that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. See, he was terrified that his reign was going to be threatened. Because that word, it means either terrified or thrown into confusion. So that's what Herod was experiencing. See, in verses 7 and 8, it says that he summoned the wise men to Beth- and told them to secretly go to Bethlehem because he wants to kill Jesus. We know in verses 16 through 18, he, goes, he tries to go along with that plan even though he fails. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So see, Herod is terrified that Jesus is going to take away his rule and his authority. And so often... So are you, and so are I, and so am I. We react sometimes when Christ comes into our life with fear. See, whenever Christ comes into our lives, we see that He demands to be in control because He's God and He's the King. Not just of the world and the universe and everything in it, but of our hearts and of our lives. That's what Christ demands of us. See, often what we do when we come to faith in Christ is we say, well, you can have X amount of my life, Jesus, but let me keep this part. Let this still be mine, and let me still be in control of it. He can take away our sins, and we'd appreciate it if he would kind of leave our favorite ones alone. That's sometimes how we react. The reason why we do that is because total surrender of everything to Christ is costly, and it's difficult. Actually, taking up our cross and following Him means that everything, not just Sunday or when, and Wednesday, belongs to Christ. But everything. There's a song that we sing with the kids at Good News Club. It's, Who is the King of the Jungle? I won't sing the whole thing because y'all don't want to hear that. But at one point it says, Who is the King of Me? And all the kids scream, J-E-S-U-S. Yes. And it's always fun to watch them do it. But whenever you sing that song, you're giving up your kingship. You're saying, I'm not the king of me, Christ is. He's the king of everything. See, we have to give up control and rule of our lives. That's not, that doesn't mean you can't make decisions. That doesn't mean we can't do things that we want to do. If we give up control of our life and we depend on Christ, our desires will be His. Not all the time, but we'll seek to please Him. We have to give up control and rule of our lives to Jesus and embrace the change that he often brings. That's not easy, and it takes a lifetime to do it. No one in this room is perfect at it. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit, because he knew that we would need help, because he knows that we are so often sinful, and because he loves us. So oftentimes, it's kind of like the remote at your house. Whenever you have the remote control in your hand, you are the master of the TV. It is yours and your will is over the TV. You can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, especially if no one's there because there's no one to complain about how they don't want to watch what you're watching. Um, But as soon as someone walks in, the battle for control starts. Their favorite show starts at 6 and it's 5.45. What are you going to do? And so sometimes what we do is we say, well, we'll flip back and forth when there's commercials. We'll watch them both. Now, really, we're not giving up control of the TV or the remote. We're kind of just kind of trying to say, you have what you have, you have what you want, and I'll have what I want. We both get what we want here. Sometimes that's how we are with God. We say, 
I'll give you control of this part of my life and this one and this one, but let me keep this one. I'll give you control of my life as long as I don't have anything better to do, as long as uh, there's nothing good on TV or, or no other things to do. Oftentimes, that's what it looks like. But our relationship with God shouldn't look like our relationship with our remote control. Instead, we should look thoroughly at our lives, really try to examine it, and see those pockets where we try to hang on to routine or, or tradition or even sin. Now, routine, routine and tradition aren't bad. But as soon as we place them in front of God's will for our lives, they cease to be harmless and good, and they become an idol that we've placed before him. It isn't easy to see those things. It isn't easy to spot those things in our lives. That's why we have to ask friends, trusted friends, and our spouse. And we have to actually hear them out and not get angry whenever they do bring these things up. And we have to ask for the Spirit's help to change these things. Because if we do, He will make us more like Christ. And He will take away our fears. Next we see that we sometimes react um, with indifference. Look with me at verses 4 through 8, and we'll see this. Herod, after he hears from these wise men, causes all the chief priests and all the scribes to come to him so he can ask them about the Christ. He asks the people that do the worship services, the people who are supposed to be interceding for God, or for the people on, uh, to God, and he asks the scholars of the Bible to come together and figure out where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Now, he doesn't just ask them once. He's actually pestering them and bugging them, and making them tell him where this Messiah is. And eventually he does. They all get together, and they tell Herod the verse of Scripture uh, that we read last week, which is Micah 5.2. They tell him precisely where the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Now, if you were to put your finger here and turn back to Micah 5.2, you would see that there's some differences in their quoting of it and how it looks in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that they're trying to mess it up. That doesn't mean they're trying to distort it. What it means is they're actually interpreting the Bible. And they actually do it right. They understand who the Messiah is going to be. They say that he's going to be a ruler, someone who's a king over Israel, and he's going to be a shepherd. And we know that a shepherd is a guide, someone that loves and cares for their sheep and guides them and protects them and takes them to food and water and, and safety. The chief priests and the scribes fully understand this. They clearly recognize that not only is he going to be born in Bethlehem, but that he's going to be a shepherd and a ruler. What should be shocking to us is that they don't do a thing about it. They realize they, they have the correct idea of what the Messiah is supposed to come and do. They knew where he was going to be born and what he was going to be like whenever he grew up and became a man, and that they should go worship him, but they don't do a thing. Here is the perfect chance for them to go with a group of men, probably well protected, to go and worship the Messiah. And as teachers of the Bible, this should have been a dream come true. They knew right where he was. They knew he was born. They should have jumped at the chance to go see Christ and to worship him. But they don't. Instead, they're indifferent to Christ. They seem to know that the Messiah is here. They recite the prophecy and they interpret it almost perfectly. But all they do is just give information about the Bible. You see, information about the Bible, all that, all that they give is done without conviction. And if it's done without conviction, it means nothing. 
They know who Herod was. They know what kind of a man he was. They should have said something to the wise men about what kind of person he was. Now, they didn't know that he was going to lie to them and that he was going to try to deceive them. But they should have gone with them. They should have used their brains and cared enough about the Messiah to go with them and to see him and tell them, don't go back to Herod. He's a bad guy. But these scholars and these teachers of the Bible, they have all the right knowledge, but it hasn't dropped into their hearts. They're indifferent to the subject that they're supposed to be teaching and studying, that they're supposed to be the the theologians of, the, the experts in. You see, knowledge of God's word without the conviction that it's true and without the choice to obey it is useless to us because God didn't just create us to have big heads of knowledge. He created us to know the Bible and to apply the Bible. See, when these men, they have much Bible knowledge and they interpret it perfectly, but they don't do a thing. It doesn't mean anything to them. They feel no conviction, only indifference. They know Christ has come. They know right where he is. And they don't lift a finger to go see him. You see, many times that's how we feel. Many times we're tired. Many times we have so much to do. And many times we know who Jesus says he is. We know what he commands us to do. Sometimes we just don't want to do it. Because we're sinful. And because we need help. See, we know the Bible. We've grown up around it. We could recite the stories of the flood, of the exodus, and of Jonah and the whale. But do we apply those things to our lives? Many times, though we're close to the Bible every week, it just doesn't seem important to us. Do we believe that it's true? And that it's meant to be our guide in this life? See, if we only know the Bible, but we don't believe that it's true and we don't apply it to our lives, the Bible says something about that. It says that we have the knowledge of demons. It says in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, what God and what James is saying there is, the demons know who God is. They know He created the universe. They watched Him do it. And they know that He sent Jesus to redeem His people. And they hate Him. Satan knows the scripture backwards and forwards. He quotes it at Jesus whenever Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. He says, it is written, and quotes it. But Satan hates God. You see, you can have all the knowledge about the Bible in the world. You could know almost everything there is to know about it. But without the deep, heartfelt conviction that it's not only true, but the word of God itself, then we have the faith of demons. You see, if we're indifferent to God's word, if we neglect to study it, if we neglect to apply what we do study, then we show our true attitude towards it. Now, I'm not talking about you forgot to read the Bible today and you read it yesterday. I'm not talking about uh, the the slip-ups that we have because we're all sinful. We all mess up and we all miss a day. I'm talking about a habitual lifestyle of neglect. That's what I mean. And that's that's what these... Wise men are showing us, and that's what these people, these scholars, show us. Though they know the Bible, though they could interpret it, they don't care about it. So imagine if you had a billion dollars in a suitcase. That'd be pretty good. Pretty good suitcase. But imagine if you didn't invest it, you didn't put it in the bank, you didn't pay off your debts with it, but instead you put it in your attic, and you just left it there. Uh, You let it sit for years and years, and all it does is stand there, and gather dust and kind of rot a little bit. It's of no use to us or our family or, or anybody. And eventually it's just going to be dust in a box. 
we probably don't really care about that billion dollars that's in a suitcase that we could have done anything with. And sometimes that's how we feel about the Bible. I'm sometimes we neglect God's word. And whenever we do, we show how we really feel about it. But that may sound discouraging. But don't be indifferent to the king. He has come to free us from the sin that plagues us. He has come to give us the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins and give us practical ways to stop sinning. See, God doesn't just uh, say, don't do that. Stop it. He does help us find ways to not do it. He does move us and put... People's, people in our minds to help keep us accountable. We should read God's word and we should study it. Moms and dads, you should read it with your families. You should teach them to love the Bible. It doesn't have to be a 30-minute long sermon. I know it's intimidating to teach the Bible. It can just be a 10-minute read-through read through part of the Bible. Just pick a book and read through it. it would be, it's just so beneficial to read God's word and to study it. On your lunch break, while you eat breakfast, just whenever you can, find time to fit God's word into your daily routine. I know it's, it's just everything gets in the way. Everything seems to come up and right whenever you sit down to read it, something just, oh, I've got to do that. That's what happens to me often. And see, if we don't understand parts of the Bible whenever we do read it, don't feel ashamed. Just pick up a commentary. And if you can't find one, find someone who knows the Bible more than you. You should never feel ashamed to ask someone about the Scripture. No two people are on the same part of this spiritual walk that we're on. See, there are people ahead of us, there are people behind us, and sometimes there are people just slightly ahead of us, and we can see them. That's why God put those people there. We're to grab the people ahead of us and say, pull me along, and to grab the people behind us and say, come with me as I learn. That's what we're supposed to do. Encourage one another to dive deep into God's word, and to study it well. So, our final point, we see that we should react with worship. So, we see this last point in verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. Herod, he comes to the wise men, or he brings them to him, and he says, leave for Bethlehem. He says, go and find the Christ. And so, in verse 9, they do leave, and they see the star, because it showed up again. Verse 9 kind of shows us that the star, um, whenever it showed up, the wise men saw it, and so they started to leave for Jerusalem. But then it went away. But now, after they've spoken to Herod, and after Herod says, go to Bethlehem, the star shows up again. And it's, it's all the way at the end of their journey, and it's standing above Mary and Joseph and Jesus' house in Bethlehem. What kind of star is this? Because when I think of stars, they don't usually act like a GPS, going right to where we need to go and staying there. This seems to be a special kind of star. Now, there are a number of theories. Some people think it was a comet going through the sky, and they were following the tail of it all the way to Bethlehem. And some people think that it was Jupiter, and it was Saturn, and they got really close together, and they were really bright, and they made like the sign of a fish. Um, and most commentators, and I tend to agree with this, is that it was just the glory of God. God just made his glory shine, and the wise men were following that. They were seeing that. Because we know in Genesis 1-3, God says, let there be light, but there's no sun. So the glory of God is heating and lighting up the universe. We know that when Moses sees God, or sees God's back in Exodus, whenever he's on the mountain, he comes down and his face is shining because he's seen the glory of God. In Revelation, it says that the glory of God will light the city 
where God and his people dwell. So I believe that God is shining his bright glory over where his son is. And these wise men see it and they run to God's glory. So whenever they get to the house, it says in verse 10 that they have exceedingly great joy. Matthew uses the strongest words possible to talk about the joy of the wise men. Like there are no greater words that he can use in that language to show that they are just bursting at the seams with joy at seeing the Messiah. And so they go into the house and verse 11 says that they fall down and they worship him. Gives the idea of kissing Jesus' feet. That that's the kind of worship that they're doing. They're laying on the ground and they're kissing his feet. So Jesus is probably one to two years old at this time. Um, And we know that because in verse 16, Herod gives the command to uh, execute the children from two years under. It's because it, it would have taken the wise men a little bit to get to Jerusalem, traveling from far away in the east. So finally, we're seeing the right reaction by someone in this passage. We're seeing the wise men understand that they're supposed to worship this boy. They're, look at their joy and look at the just greatness of their joy and remember Herod's fear and the people who studied the word of God's indifference. It's a contrast that these, this king of the Jews and these people who study the law are fearful and indifferent. And these wise men, who weren't raised with the scripture probably, are bursting at the seams to see Jesus. This should be our reaction when we see the new king. This should be our reaction to seeing King Jesus. They don't just rejoice though, they give. They give treasures. They give of the things that they have. Things that are fit for a king. They give him gold, and throughout the Bible, gold represents a king. Gold is only given to kings. And they are recognizing that not only is he the king, but he's the king over them. Because they're paying tribute to Christ. They're submitting to him. They also give him frankincense. And as we talked about with the children, frankincense is used to worship God. They would burn it in the temple with grain offerings, and it would symbolize the prayers of the people and their desire to please God. But they also gave him myrrh. And myrrh was a weird gift because myrrh has like two uses. One of it is they would mix it with wine and it would make an anesthetic. They offer it to Jesus on the cross and he refuses it. But the other use is for burial preparation. And so they use it, they actually use myrrh whenever they prepare Jesus' body after he dies. So this represents not only Jesus' humanity, but the fact that he came to die. See, the wise men... They have better knowledge of Christ than the people of Israel. They're recognizing that not only is he a king, but that he is God. And that he is a man that is supposed to sacrifice himself for his people. Now whether they got that from Daniel or whether they got that from God himself, we don't know. But, they, but we know that they understand. See, the wise men, they, un, they, not just, they don't just understand who Christ is, but they do something about it. They see the star, and they run to it. They meet the Christ, and they give him gifts. See, that's what we're supposed to do. Whenever we see Jesus, we're supposed to run to him. We're supposed to do things. We're supposed to serve him. Not just worship him on Sunday mornings, but worship him Monday through Sunday. So many times, it's like we have a map to a treasure. And we know where the island is. And we know how to get there. And we've got a boat. And we know where the X is on the island to dig. But then we see a $5 bill. And we pick it up and we go buy a Snickers and a Coca-Cola and we're satisfied. Sometimes that's what happens. 
Because so often, though we see Christ and though we know who He is, we're satisfied with things that are far less wonderful. This morning, don't be satisfied with things that are far less wonderful. Look to who Jesus is. Learn from the wise men. See what they saw in Christ. We should respond with worship Monday through Saturday. And the things that we do, being kind to our neighbors, supporting our spouse and our kids, just not blowing up at people whenever we, whenever we could, just leaning on the Holy Spirit. That's how we worship God. It takes time, it takes work, but God does promise to help us. God doesn't leave us alone. He's always with us. So this morning, a new king has been born. He's the savior of the world. And we have to react. All the world reacts to Christ. And we're either going to react with fear for our power, we're going to react with indifference, or we're going to react with acceptance and worship of who He is. Which reaction will we choose? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Again, thank You for everything that You give us. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for, God, just how You work in us and how You promise not to leave us or forsake us. Lord, sometimes we come and we hear your word, and we realize, well, just how sinful we are. I know that's how I feel this morning. And Father, we need your help. And I pray that you help us. Help us to react in the way that you want us to. Help us to worship you Monday through Sunday in everything that we do. And whenever we fall and whenever we fail, whenever we have fear, whenever we have indifference, forgive us of our sins. Be with us this week and this year. Lord, we love you. And we say these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.